Well, this is a time where uh, I know we're anticipating a lot. Um, I think every year for us, it changes. Everyone in a different stage. You probably remember being small. Some of you are. And uh, staring under the Christmas tree and wondering if Christmas would ever get here. Some of you are at the stage of life where you think, well, wasn't Christmas just last week? They seem to come quicker and quicker. But we certainly are to anticipate this day and for good reason. This is the day in which our Lord God Almighty came into our world. God in the flesh. I'm grateful for this day, and we should look at it with expectant hearts. And that's what I'd like to lead us to do today, is to think about what we should expect and have an expectant heart and say like we sung, come thou long expected Jesus. There are a lot of things that we look forward to, whether it's the birth of a child, some celebration, or our wedding. I think the, the uh, number one best day of my life was when I got saved, and the second was when I said, I do to my wife. I said, I'm going to marry you, and uh, we're going to grow old together, and praise God, um, we hope that one day we will. I'm growing old, she's not, but we, uh, we want to grow together. And some anticipation and expectations don't, are not met. I know some of you as football fans in the state of Florida are disappointed with the way your season went. Either it just didn't go the way you wanted, or you feel, feel like you got robbed at the end. Either way, you're looking forward to next year. I remember when we were getting married, we were looking forward to our, our honeymoon, and uh, as all couples who are getting married do, and I'd purchased tickets for a cruise and, uh, and a plane ticket, and we got on the shuttle at JIA, and I had all of our luggage, I had everything squared away. Have my, this is, we, got, we got married in the last century, before the turn of the century, so that's when you had to have a boarding pass. Did anybody, anybody remember that? And you didn't have to, TSA was not as a big a deal, but you had to have all of that documentation with you, your, your boarding pass. I had my cruise tickets. I stuck them in my pocket. We got on that shuttle at JIA. I got off the shuttle, got in line and realized that while I was on the shuttle, those tickets to the cruise and to the plane were still on the shuttle. And we didn't have a whole lot of time to catch our plane. I thought, this is not the way you start a marriage, by skipping your honeymoon. Well, baby, what do you think about, we can't go on our cruise, you just want to hang out at Jack's Beach? I mean, what do you want to do? But by God's grace, we got it just in time, and we got on that, we got on that plane, we got on that cruise, and that was a great experience for us. You know, there are a lot of people anticipating and wanting to go to heaven, but you don't have what it takes to get there. You don't just go because you want to go. The old country song is, not everybody who's talking about heaven is actually going to heaven. There's something that you must have in order to go to heaven, and it's not a ticket. It's more than that. It's a personal relationship with a living God through Jesus Christ. And if you want to go to heaven, you must have Christ, the Christ of Christmas, who's come to live not only for us, but live in us. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to read about a man who was expecting the first Christmas and lead our hearts to do the same about Christ. If you will have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. There should be a Bible around you if you don't have one. And I'm going to be on page 805 in that Bible, 805. You can follow along with us. We want you to check us, all right? I want you to always check whoever's preaching here with what the Bible says and check it twice, all right? If you'll stand, we'll read Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, after Jesus was born, eight days after his birth, he was circumcised. He was called Jesus. Look at this. This was the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The name Jesus meaning Savior. Verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, that is Joseph and Mary, 
According to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. So Leviticus 12 tells the, the people of God how to purify themselves after birth and then to present their children in dedication. Every male who opens the, the, the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now, this was an allowance for poor people. That this is what Mary and Joseph brought to the temple means. They were impoverished. They were not people of means. Jesus was not born to some political leader, some royal family, but to a carpenter, a blue-collar worker, and a peasant girl. They come to the temple. They bring their offering as the law allows. In verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man, notice, was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel means he was waiting for the Messiah who would rescue the people of God. That's what he was looking for. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26 tells us what the Holy Spirit revealed. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, and you can just imagine this scene. Simeon had been wanting to see the Messiah. He'd been looking at every child. Could you imagine bringing your child to the temple and this older man coming in and evaluating your child and being disappointed? Only because he was looking for the Messiah. And now finally, finally, what has been promised to him has come to pass. Expectations met. He says, Lord, verse 29, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. Verse 33, and his father and mother marveled at what he said about him. They marveled. This one Jesus who was born is going to be the salvation of all people, even Gentiles. Verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed. A sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is going to reveal the heart. He's revealing the heart today. He pierces through the heart to reveal whether or not you are a follower of Christ or not. There's no neutrality with Christ. This was amazing to Mary and Joseph to hear that Jesus is salvation, but a revelation that it is also a damnation, a blessing at Christmas and a curse, a blessing for those who Christ dwells and in whom Christ dwells, a curse to those whom reject Christ. You're in one of two categories today, aren't you? You can't be indifferent. You can't be neutral when it comes to Christ. Christmas is not just a nice story. It is the truth of God who has come for you in salvation. Will you follow Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us this word. Help us as we study it, to understand it, and to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. I want you to notice verse 21, because the Lord Jesus Christ comes in God's time. All children come in God's time. All of us were born at a particular time in history according to God's providential plan. And Jesus was no different. In fact, Jesus came according to God's providential plan in heaven and His purpose for earth, those of us who are here. 
He's named before he was ever born by an angel. His name is Jesus, which means Savior. But he's born to a woman who's not married, and you know that he's married, uh, he's born, excuse me, to Mary, who has never known a man. Now, this is incredible, because in chapter 1, and verse 35, we read, how that the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow Mary, and therefore the child will be born of Mary. An incredible, incredible event. This is a miraculous birth, isn't it? We might say this about all births. Well, all births are miraculous, but in reality, they're natural. All births are a common course of God's ordination of life. But this birth was the one that was absolutely miraculous. There were other births in the Bible that were miraculous. Abraham and Sarai, they had a baby in a miraculous way, but no one ever had a baby like this. And this baby, Jesus was born miraculously. Now, others had claimed to have miraculous births up to this point. It was Caesar Augustus. Remember Caesar Augustus who he was going to tax the entire world. You know, as much as things changed, they stayed the same. And so taxes were a part of that world. Mary and Joseph had to go pay their taxes because of this guy, Caesar Augustus, who ruled in Rome. But Augustus did not want to be known as a common guy, just a common, ordinary man. So he made up a story of how he was born of Apollo. Maybe he was thinking about Alexander the Great, who lived before him, the great Greek, who said that he didn't have a normal birth either. He didn't want to be a commoner. So he made up this story that his mom cohabitated with a serpent. I don't know about you guys, but I'd rather say I was just born of natural means than that. But maybe they're following along the lines of others like the Greek gods who had all types of myths about their births. There have been a lot of stories about people's births, even Buddha. It's been said was born because a tin um, tusked elephant came into his mom and thrust a tusk into her side so that Buddha was conceived, the enlightened one. Now, nothing was ever said about that for 300 years after, before uh, and during the birth of Buddha, but after his birth. But Jesus wasn't born like any of those guys, any of these people who claimed to have those silly types of births. Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit meaning he had no earthly father, therefore he was without a sin nature. He is born without sin. He was born without a propensity to sin. He was born without a bent to sin, and therefore he would be born the one who could save sinners. Only a sinless man can save sinners, can live in substitution of those who have done wrong and broken the law. But he was born under the law. How do I know this? Notice the text tells us that Jesus has to be presented in the temple. He is going to follow the law to the letter. Even as a baby, Jesus is following the law, the Levitical law of Leviticus chapter 12. And in that text, we're told that he is to go for purification with his parents. His parents bring him in in order to present him again according to the law. Jesus, who is under the law, though never sinned. Is coming for those of us who are under the law and have sin. This is why the Apostle Paul says, now follow this, that Jesus Christ was born in the fullness of time. God sent His Son forth, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, all of us are born under the law. Every one of us are born under God's law. You and I are born underneath the moral code of God and are accountable to a holy God who created us. 
I mean, we know that we are subject to God's law, right? You say, well, not me. Well, you are. You might say, well, I don't believe in the law of gravity. That's fine. You may not believe in the law of gravity, but jump off a building and you'll find out that you're subject to it. And the more you eat at Christmas, the more you're subject to it. Oh, me or oh, my. We're also under the incredible moral code of God's law. When God says, don't lie, do not lie, do not bear false witness, that is God's law for all people everywhere, no matter who they are. And yet, we break God's law and we lie. And because we break God's law and we lie, and since we are born under the law, there's a consequence, and the consequence is death. And people die all the time. And they die because of sin. But there is a greater death that the Bible talks about because of sin. A greater death than a physical death, yeah, a greater death than a physical death, and that is a spiritual death that is a result of our rebellion against God, and all of us have rebelled against God. We've sinned. But Jesus came not under the law, not under the law. In this sense, He never sinned, but born under the law that He might obey the law for us, subjected Himself to God's law. This is the reason Jesus was born, to save us who have broken the law. So Jesus then would subject Himself to the law and fulfill it in every way so that we might be saved. Now, Jesus is born according to God's purpose. He's born to parents. Amazing, isn't it? He could have come as a king. He could have come as a royal being that is to be worshipped by all and bowed down to all, but that's not how He came. He came born to parents as a baby so that He would endure all things that we've endured, go through everything that you went through and everything that you're going through. There's someone who's in touch with you today. When no one else understands, there's one who does. A high priest who's not untouched by us, but sympathetic towards us because he was tempted in all ways that we've been tempted, and yet without sin. And he was born to parents who were, as we said, poor. They had to actually have birth in a, in a stable and then lay Jesus in a manger. But God would provide for these parents providentially, just as He will for you, just as He will for you. These parents were then going to raise up this child. Heck, imagine this, raising Jesus. What are they going to do? They're going to teach Him. They're going to train Him. They're going to raise Him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is their responsibility, and they are blessed to be able to do that. Any parent who makes that decision to raise their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is a blessed parent. These parents take Jesus to the temple. Why? Because this is what they know they are to do. We find Jesus on one occasion in the temple at 12 years old. Imagine uh, being a Sunday school teacher. How many of you ever taught children in Sunday school? You know, there's always one person, one kid in Sunday school that answers every question. There's always one kid you have to say, okay, Johnny, you can't answer this time. Sally, Sally. And you know what's going on there. You know that mom and dad are pouring into them. And so they, they got it. They come, they know. Imagine Jesus walking into your Sunday school class. That happens when he's 12. And that, the Bible says that the leaders in the synagogue, they are amazed, astounded at the questions and answers of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Even though he knows everything because he's God, the Bible says he goes home, he's subject to his parents, he grows in, in stature, and he grows in spirit. He grows being obedient to his parents and in favor with God and man. You see Jesus being baptized in Luke chapter 3, the next chapter. And in Luke chapter 3, he's baptized and he's praying. How does he know to pray? He knows to pray not only because he is the Son of God, no doubt, but his parents have prayed. He has seen those calloused knees and those calloused hands of his 
dad, Joseph, who's worked as a carpenter, get down and pray to God. He's seen his mama call out to God. He's learned to pray. Watch your mom and dad. He prays. There's an occasion where he feeds 5,000 people. He takes bread and fish, and you know the story. But what does he do before he feeds everybody? He says the blessing. It doesn't matter where Mary and Joseph are, probably. They're going to say thanks to God for whatever they're eating. There's a time where Jesus is in the synagogue, and the Word of God is being read from Isaiah chapter 61, and Jesus said, I want you to know this is about me. He's been taught the Word of God. It is the blessing of His parents to teach Jesus about His Father. Imagine that. Teaching the all-knowing one anything is absolutely astounding, but it is the blessing of a parent, and it's our blessing too. To have our children underneath the Word of God, to see our children raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to pray with our children, to teach them to give thanks to God for everything. Hey, when they open their presents tomorrow and they thank you for their presents and they say, thank you, thank you, thank you, remind them, right? Let's give thanks to Almighty God who gives us even our very next breath to breathe. Children, it's important to obey our parents, right? The Bible says, obey your parents in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Do this, so this is a promise so that your days may be long on the earth. Solomon was telling his son, son, hear the instructions that I give you. Be attentive that you may gain insight, for I have given you good precepts. Don't forsake any of my teaching. I think he's thinking about when he's a child, Solomon, when he's telling his son these things, because he says, for when I was with my father, tender and only in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words and keep my commandments and live. I think Solomon there is remembering when he was a little boy and his dad David and his mama were telling him how to live for God and how Solomon probably rejected some of those things and certainly, no doubt, turned his back on some of those teachings and what it cost him. He's telling his son, hold on to these instructions. He tells his daughter, listen to this, like a gold ring in a pig's snout. Can you just picture that in just a minute? Like a nose ring in a pig is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Listen to the teaching of your parents. Douglas MacArthur, who was um, educated at West Point, where he received his basic military training, was, one of the great, was in a great trial in his life where he had to make a huge decision. It's amazing sometimes how, when you're at that point, how if you seek God, He will give you exactly what you need. If you ask for wisdom, He will give it. He was asking God for wisdom. He received a letter <laughs> from his mama. And his mom included in that letter a poem. And this is what the poem said to MacArthur. As he's contemplating this decision, he receives this poem. Like mother, like son. It is a saying that is true. The world will largely judge you and judge a mother by you. Be sure it will say when it's verdict you've won, she reaps as she has sowed. This man is her son. We often heard it said, like father, like son, but also what MacArthur heard in that poem or read in that poem was like mother, like son. You honor your mother and father when you obey them and when you obey the Lord because you point to the glory of Christ when you bring yourself under the subjection of your parents. Jesus did that. And if Jesus, who knew it all and created it all, could come into subjection to his parents, shouldn't we? I mean, I, all of us have heard it said that when you're in your teenage years, your mom and dad don't know anything. 
But when you get older, they know everything. I experienced that. But don't let that be the testimony of you as a Christian child. This is parents who are blessed by God, raising up their children, nurtured and nurtured of the Lord. But look at verse 25. This is where now you see Simeon, who's righteous, about and expecting. What is he expecting? He's expecting the Messiah. Verse 25, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, and a spirit, the Holy Spirit is upon him. He's a Jewish man by birth, but he's a Jew by faith. He's looking and believing. His name actually means hearing, and he's listening for the Lord, and he's looking, looking for the Messiah. I like the way John Phillips describes in his commentary Simeon. He says, Simeon haunted the temple precincts, always looking for something, ever a father and a mother who would bring a newborn baby to the temple to be dedicated. But with Simeon, he would always be peering expectantly and turn away disappointed yet again. But at this point, he now has been relieved. Why did Simeon look for the Messiah? We had John Phillips said a great book that pointed to the time Jesus would be born. Hey, Jesus' birth is more than a nice story, y'all, more than a, a theme of song and movies. Jesus' birth came at the perfect time in history, and anyone who studied the Word of God would have known when he was born. Simeon had a great book and knew who Jesus was when he would be born. He was looking for Simeon, and he had looked for him because not only did Simeon have great, a great book, he had a great burden. That was a sin that had to be relieved. Think about Simeon working in this temple, constantly making atonement for the people of God through sacrifices of animals that would say, we are sinners and in need of saving. He had that burden himself of his own sin. He was looking. Not just for someone who would come and rescue Israel from the powers of Rome, but someone who would rescue his own heart from sin. Mary prayed that way. She who saw this Savior needed a Savior. Joseph needed a Savior. Simeon was looking for a Savior, and he would not be disappointed. Maybe others dismissed this poor couple. They came into the temple. They didn't have a lot to offer. They turned their backs on them. They saw their pigeons they knew they didn't have a whole lot, so let somebody else deal with them. But Simeon saw what others thought to be as nobodies, as somebody, and he found that these nobodies not only had somebody, but the Messiah. Jesus is not just ordinary. He was born to these, these impoverished people in order to rescue us who are impoverished because of our sin. Martin Luther, Martin Luther long ago said, when Mary and Joseph arrived at Bethlehem, they were the most insignificant and despised. No one noticed or was even conscious of what God was doing at the stable. He lets the large houses in Bethlehem, the costly apartments, remain empty. He lets their inhabitants eat, drink, and be merry. But this comfort and treasure are hidden from them. Oh, what a dark night it was for Bethlehem. Bethlehem was not conscious of the glorious light. See how God shows that he utterly disregards what the world is, has, or desires. Furthermore, the world shows how little it knows or notices what God is, what God has, and what God does. It bears saying again that each year we bemoan Christmas as being that season where it, it's everything this, this time but Christ. We had a movie on the other night in the background. We were wrapping presents just to get a little Christmas going and a movie we'd never seen and just shortly into the movie, they dismissed Jesus Christ from 
the movie as if he was insignificant, so we just turn the movie off. But isn't that really how sometimes our own lives can be, that we can dismiss the very reason for Christmas because there are so many other things vying for our attention that become ultimate that should never be. Some uh, little, little while ago, um, my daughter Sarah Ann was reminding me about the, C, the, the screw tape letters. She said, you know, everyone ought to read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. And what a brilliant mind C.S. Lewis had who came to conversion because of a friend who had also been saved after, after witnessing to him. C.S. Lewis wrote um, about a demon. And he thought in his mind, you know, an incredible imagination, what a demon might be taught by the devil himself. And this demon was being taught by the devil. And the devil said this in this fictitious story, but I think really relates a whole lot of the truth that happens maybe in the hollows of hell. This devil has heard the, de- this devil has heard the de- devil say that God, God is a hedonist at heart. What does he mean by that? All the fast vigils and stakes, crosses are only a facade. All the religion Basically, C.S. Lewis is saying, through this devil, are like the foam of the seashore. Out at sea, in the sea of God, there is pleasure and pleasure. He makes no secret of it at all. At his hand are pleasures and pleasures evermore. He has filled this world full of pleasures. These are the things humans do all day long. They enjoy the pleasures. They sleep, they wash, they eat, they drink, they make love, play, pray, work. Everything that we have has to be twisted before it's any use of us. In other words, the devil's telling his protege, God is a, is a gift-giving God. He's full of pleasures. He's full of joys. But only thing we can do to fight that is to make these joys and pleasures of God something into what they're not supposed to be, to make them God's to twist them and to make them something to be addicted to or to be sought after preeminently. You see, God is a good God. And today, we can remember that. And Tomorrow, when you're enjoying time with your family, remember God has given you good gifts, but don't focus on the gifts above the gift giver. When you eat that pecan pie, you can say, man, how good is God that he made it taste like this and not like broccoli. How good is our God that He gives us songs to sing, to warm our heart, family to be with, to enjoy one another's company, to through thick and thin hold to each other, to love the joys of this world's fine, to enjoy this world is in fact godly so long as the things of this world do not become ultimate but point to the preeminence of Christ. This is why we've been on Christmas so much, when everything should point to the goodness of God, that everything sometimes become the ultimate thing. When Simeon comes in, he doesn't miss what everyone else misses. He doesn't miss Christ. He doesn't miss Christ because he's been in the Word. He doesn't miss Christ because he's been looking for Christ to work. He doesn't miss Christ because the Holy Spirit of God has rule in his heart. If you're missing hearing from God, it might simply be because you've neglected His Word. It might be because you're not looking for Him diligently because the Scriptures teach, you will find me if you seek with me, seek for me with all of your heart. You have not submitted yourself to the Holy Spirit of God. So after he sees the Lord, look what he proclaims. Look at verse 29. I'm going to get here to verse 29. This is amazing. He says, Lord, you're letting your servant depart in peace. You know what he means there, right? 
I'm ready. I, I can die now. It doesn't mean he's about to die. We're not even sure how old he is. We think that he's pretty old, but it could be that he's young. Nonetheless, he's ready to go. And, and, and you're really not ready to go as much as you might be ready to go unless Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, has been born in your heart. Like, I was ready to go on that honeymoon, I'm going to tell you. But man, without those tickets, we weren't going. We weren't going. You might want to go to heaven. In fact, I know you do. Jesus is not a ticket. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Unless he rules in your heart, you're not going to be where he is forever. But you can. You can have Jesus. You can follow this Lord. You can receive this salvation. This salvation is offered. Look in verse 29. Lord, you're letting your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples. Anyone can be saved, but not everyone is saved. You can be saved if you be willing to receive Christ. It's not only salvation offered, he's assigned a post. Look in verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed. A sore will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Do you see what's here? Do you see what's here? It's not only that Jesus is salvation, he is also the one who judges. He's salvation, he's damnation, the blessing of Christmas is salvation, but the curse of Christmas is rejection of Christ. It is only through salvation that we will make it into glory. It's only through receiving Christ that we'll have that salvation. And yet, here today, Jesus stands as that divider. He is, as we've been saying over the last couple of weeks, the fork in the road, and you cannot remain neutral with Christ. You have to decide today whether you will follow him or you will reject him. This is what Simeon says. It is true then. It is true now. Jesus stands as one either to be followed or one to be opposed. There's no middle ground. So I would never oppose Christ. I love the story of Christ. I like the story of Christmas. Christmas is not the story to be liked. It is a story to be understood that God left heaven, became flesh to be our Savior, and we have to decide what will we do with Jesus. He did not call us to religion to follow after some system or ritual. In fact, many of you today would say, I think my religion's getting in my way of relationship with Christ, and you may be absolutely correct because religion can do that. God did not come to make you a part of a particular religion. He came to make you a part of his family, and that only comes when you follow Christ. Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's in the seventh phrase of that song that we sang, O come, long-expected Jesus, that we sing, he's the desire of every nation, the desire of every heart. And we desire, as C.H. Spurgeon said, every heart know Christ. I would desire that you would know Christ today. But my desire pales in comparison to the desire of God who would not that any would perish, but that it would all come to repentance. And just here we read, anyone can be saved, but not all will be saved. He, Jesus, will cause the fall and rise of many, and some will oppose him. And the reason is that we're all born with a Herod syndrome. Herod, who heard Jesus, the king of the Jews, was born 
did not follow Christ but wanted to destroy Christ because Jesus was coming to destroy his life. Jesus was coming, the king of the Jews, to take away his power, to take away his purposes and plans. He didn't want to submit to Christ. He had everything he wanted in life, and he had it going the way he desired. And so he desired to destroy Christ. And you know what he does? To try to get to Christ, Herod sends his henchmen out to kill every boy under the age of two in Israel. How evil is that? It's evil. And yet that same Herod complex is in our heart. And we don't, and maybe should never consider ourselves as evil as Herod actually ended up being by his practice. We are just as evil in our mindset. We're born not wanting Christ to rule our hearts. We, we want to go to heaven so long as we can rule our life. We want to go to heaven so long as we can do what we want, when we want, how we want. But it's not this way with Jesus. He's not only salvation, he's a sign of opposition. Either you oppose him or you will bow before him. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. Where are you today? I'd invite you to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Jesus came, the blessing of Christmas to save. The song we sang, born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Does Christ reign in your heart today? Has his kingdom been brought to you today? By your own eternal spirit, rule in our hearts alone. Not, there's not room on our hearts for m- multiple kings. There's only room in our heart for one. And Christ came to be born in our heart. That is not a metaphor. That is real. Jesus came. He's more than a nice story. He came to change your life.